0: This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. This morning's reading of God's holy and very good word comes from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said. And they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before,
1: Good to see you all here this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have once again to gather together as your people and to praise your name. We thank you that you're a great God. We thank you that you have provided a way of salvation for us in Christ. And that is the reason that we're here. So I pray that today that you would continually bring our minds back to that truth. That you would encourage us. That you'd build us up. That you would help us to respond well to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you care for us. We thank you that you provide for us constantly in every way. And Lord, we think today specifically of those who are in our congregation who are hurting, who are struggling. Lord, specifically we pray for uh, Ed Thomas, who is dealing with a, a serious round with COVID. We pray that you would heal his body. We pray that you would be uh, with his family as they continue to pray for him. His wife Blanche, who's also dealing with COVID. We pray for Betty White, who's dealing with COVID. God, we pray that there would be healing in their bodies and comfort to their families. Lord, we pray these things. We bring our needs before you, knowing that there are so many others in this church who are struggling, whether it's physically or mentally, spiritually, emotionally. We bring these needs to you knowing that you are faithful to hear and you're faithful to walk with us through each of those situations. So we pray knowing that you will answer and that you have answered and that you are a good and gracious God. Lord, we pray for this morning as we're here to be reminded of what you've done for us, to be reminded of who you are. I pray for the preaching of the word that I wouldn't say anything apart from what you have planned for me to say. And God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would apply the word to our hearts, that you would encourage us, that you would draw us closer to you, that as we leave this place this morning, that we would be more in love with you than we were when we walked in. God, again, we pray that your name would be glorified, that you would be honored in everything that happens here this morning. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. So, if you know me, You know that I love The Lord of the Rings, and if you don't, you'll find it out soon enough. Uh, Whether it's the books or the movies, I'm convinced it's one of the greatest stories ever told. And specifically in the books, there's a character that you meet early on, you get to spend some time with, whose name is Strider. When you first meet him, he's this kind of scruffy guy. You wouldn't think much of him. He's outdoorsy. You walk past him on the street, you may uh, not think anything of him. You may be a little intimidated. But as the story goes on, we find out that Strider is actually this noble and brave man, and he ends up with this uh, group of companions who he leads on a quest to destroy the evil ring of power. Later on in the book, we find out that Strider's real name is Aragorn, and Aragorn is the heir to the throne of men. And through this whole story, his companions have been, have been learning to love him and follow him. They get to the point where they would follow him anywhere. And this is before they even recognize who he really is. But now we know that he is the heir to the throne. And by the end of the story, he takes his rightful place. And it's at that point that his friends actually realize that the entire time that they've been following this guy, they've been with the king. That's a lot what Mark does in his gospel. Because Mark recognizes that all the things that Jesus did while he was on earth, and his ministry, and his miracles, there was a certain level of understanding that people could have, but they wouldn't fully understand what Jesus came to do and who he was until after the crucifixion and the resurrection. Now, we've been in the Gospel of Luke for the last several months, and we're going to come back to it, but for this week and for next week, we're going to take a pause in that, and we're going to skip forward in the life of Christ we do that because this is what we often know as holy week or the passion week and we call it that not because this week is more holy or any more special in particular than any other week in fact every single sunday that we gather is a celebration of the resurrection you might hear people say around here every sunday is easter sunday and that's absolutely true because the reason that we gather on sundays is because that's the day that jesus rose from the dead that's the reason that we come together and worship But we do think it's a good thing to slow down on this week and spend a little extra time looking at the last few days of Jesus's life. What did he do on his way to the cross and ultimately when he would when he would rise? And today is Palm Sunday, as you know, as we just read, we read about how when Jesus came into Jerusalem, it was a celebration and people would lay their coats down. They laid palm branches down because this was an entrance for a king. So the people had some kind of idea who Jesus was. They knew that he deserved extra honor, extra praise, but they didn't fully understand until after he completed what he came to do. Now, we are blessed because we live on this end of history where we have the completed scriptures. We know exactly who Jesus is. We know what he did. We have the Bible. And this is important because who we know Jesus to be is going to determine our actions. Who we know Jesus to be determines our actions. In this passage that that Mark read for us just a minute ago, I see three major actions, and each action is taken based on the person or the people's knowledge of who Jesus is. And the first one we see is actually Jesus himself. So look with me, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to look at uh, verse 1 in Mark 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. So Jesus' first action as he comes, as he's preparing to go into Jerusalem, is to command his disciples to do something. And Jesus does this because he's the one person in this entire story that actually knows exactly who he is at this point. Jesus knows that he is the eternal Son of God. He's not guessing. He's not trying to figure it out. He knows who he is. He knows why he's on earth. He knows why he is at this point in history right then and there. Jesus is 100% man, but he's also 100% God. You've probably heard Pastor Aaron say at times before, God's math is not our math. Because both of those things are completely true, and that's necessary for us to understand, because Jesus is not guessing at what is going to happen here. He knows that when he sends his disciples out to get this donkey, that in doing so, he's going to be fulfilling hundreds of years old prophecy from Zechariah. Zechariah 9.9, we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus was fully aware when he sent his disciples to go get this, uh, this colt, that it would be fulfilling this prophecy from so many hundreds of years earlier. He also knows exactly what needs to be said in the situation. Uh, he tells his disciples, if somebody asks you, why are you doing this? This is what you're supposed to say. Say, the Lord has need of it. I always thought it was really strange that Jesus would send, send these guys off to grab this animal and take it. And then when somebody asks, what on earth are you doing? Just say, well, the Lord needs it. And they'd say, oh, okay. But that's exactly what happens. Because Jesus knew the words that needed to be said. He knew the people that... that, the, that owned the cult he knew what needed to happen in order for things to work out in this exact way now there's something interesting about that word lord and i'm going to give you a a tip Uh, anytime that you are reading the english bible the the translation of the scripture uh, when you see the word lord there are two ways that you might see it one way it is in all caps All the letters are capitalized. And when you see that, you know that it's talking about the covenant name of God. We know in the Old Testament that's Yahweh. So if you see Lord in all caps, you know that the writer's talking about God himself. If you see it in lowercase letters, it means master. It means sir. It's a a title of respect. It's a title of authority, but it's not God. And interestingly, in this situation, it's the lowercase version. So Jesus isn't even relying on saying, "Well, God needs it." Well, of course they're going to give it up then. But he's saying the Lord needs it. And it's kind of an ambiguous term, but interestingly, even though in his not referring to himself as Yahweh, not referring to himself as the Son of God or the Son of Man, which he often did, he says, "The Lord needs it." But knowing those exact terms and the exact sequence of events that needed to happen, he is displaying his divinity. He's displaying his foreknowledge. He's displaying his sovereignty over all of history. So Jesus commands his disciples. He tells them exactly what to do because at that moment and forever, he fully is aware of his authority. He knows that he's the king. His disciples don't realize it yet, but he knows it. And that applies to us, because we need to recognize, before we recognize anything else, that Jesus is our king. He is Lord over everything. Therefore, he has the right to command us in everything. We have a tendency to to kind of pick and choose the aspects of Jesus that we like. We'll focus on something, whether it's Uh, Jesus in the manger or we picture Jesus with a child on his knee we picture Jesus on the cross and it's like a freeze frame in time and he did all of those things and that's important they're good they're necessary things but that's not the fullness of who Jesus is in fact one of the things that I think we miss a lot is the fact that right now Jesus is at the right hand of the father and he's ruling and reigning as our king revelation 19 gives us a good picture of of how we're going to see Jesus when we see him next. Starting in verse 11 it says, "Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, that's crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written." King of kings and Lord of lords. We have to understand Jesus is king over everything. Over all other rulers, presidents, emperors, everything. Jesus is king. One of our church planners uh, that we work with in the area started printing on, on shirts and hats the simple phrase that uh, Jesus over everything. And I love it because it's a constant reminder that there's not a single thing in all of creation that Jesus doesn't have authority over. If we mess that up, if our view of who Jesus is is deficient, then we're going to have problems with everything else. We're going to have problems with the things that he calls us to do. Honestly, we're going to have problems with the rest of what we read in this passage. We've got to get that Jesus is king. And we tend to not like that as Americans. We like... We don't like to have somebody that has authority over us. We want to be independent. We want to be autonomous. We want to be the captain of our own ship, but we're not. We're not sovereign over our own lives. Only Jesus holds that distinction. So those owners of the colt, when Jesus sent his disciples to go get the colt, they had no right to refuse Jesus the use of that colt because the colt was his. The people were his. You might think, well, we don't have Jesus sitting here right now telling us exactly what to do. We don't have him commanding us right now, but we absolutely do. We have the scriptures completed. Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us in question three that what the word teaches us is what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. It tells us everything that we're to believe and to do. So when we decide that we're going to disobey the scriptures, we're going to disregard what it says, we're not just disobeying some book, we're disobeying the sovereign command of our king. And just refusing to acknowledge that Jesus has authority doesn't make the authority go away. You can't just say, well, he's not my king. He is. Refusing to acknowledge his authority over us just makes us guilty of disobedience. So do you recognize That Jesus is your king do you recognize that because he's your king it means that he has absolute right to command everything about your life every detail we've got to get that because who we know Jesus to be determines our actions and he is our king So the first action we see in this this passage is that Jesus commands his followers out of an understanding that he's king, that he is sovereign. The second action we see is from the disciples. Let's pick up reading in verse four. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Jesus commands his disciples and his disciples do what? They obey. They do exactly what Jesus said. And they find that everything works out exactly how Jesus said it would. But why did they obey? We already kind of talked about they don't understand the fullness of who Jesus is. But they were committed to him. At this point the disciples have spent these last years walking with Jesus. They heard him, they heard him preach. They heard him teach. They saw him do miracles. They spent time with him one on one. They knew who he was in that he was somebody who loved them and they loved him. He was their master and they recognized that. Just like we talked about Aragorn and his companions grew to love and trust him, the same thing happened with the disciples to the point where they didn't necessarily fully understand why Jesus told them to go get this cult. I don't know that Zechariah 9 9 popped up into their heads right in that minute and they said, Ah, I know what I'm doing. But they did it because they were committed to Jesus. He had proven that when he told them to do something, it was worth doing, so they did it. There's a a theme that keeps coming up in the Gospel of Mark that scholars call the messianic secret. And I'm sure you've read the passages where Jesus will do a miracle uh, and he'll heal somebody or something like that, and then he tells them, go and don't tell anyone what I've done for you. I don't know if you've ever looked at that and wondered, why on earth did he do that? we never really get an explanation but one one thought and i think it's a good one is that mark's trying to show us that jesus knows his trajectory he knows where he's going he knows what he's going to do but he also understands that as people watch him do these miracles and as people hear him preach they're going to get part of it but they're not going to fully understand the full extent of it until after the death and resurrection the ascension even the coming of the holy spirit so he does the miracles, and it's basically saying, wait, you're going to really get this later. But in the moment, he requires obedience, even if they don't fully understand. I am one of, I think, what's the majority of people who cannot solve a Rubik's Cube I think they're frustrating and I've completely given up. So if I can get one side and then I'll, just, I'll show it to you like this and say, look, I did it. It's the red side. But one time, a few years back, I had a friend who actually understood how to do it. And he sat me down and he handed me one and I had one and he told me each of the moves to do it and I followed every move that he said and by the end of it, I had completed a Rubik's Cube. That's the only time I've ever done it. And I didn't do it because I understood it. I did it because he was telling me what to do and I trusted the guy who actually knew what he was talking about. Now I understand that there's algorithms to it, and there's actually a logical, mathematical sequence of events. It's math, so I understand why I don't like it. But I did what he said, and we got the desired results. I didn't really have to understand in that moment. That's for us. We are not always going to understand everything that we are called to do by our King. But We should know him enough and we should trust him enough that we do it. He has proven himself over and over to us. So the question is, do we trust Jesus enough to obey him even when we don't fully understand or even when we don't fully agree? When scripture tells us one thing to do and one way to believe and the culture says something completely opposite and they can make some pretty good arguments for things, Are we willing to stand on what our king says over what the pressure is from outside? Or even more personally, what about when there's something that you really want to do, a belief that you really hold, and then you find that what Jesus says goes against that? Are you willing to follow Jesus instead of what you want? Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that's not a threat. It's just a true statement if we love Jesus, we will keep his commandments. Obedience that honors God springs from a heart of love. It doesn't come out of coercion. It doesn't come out of obligation. It doesn't come out of a feeling of guilt. It comes out of love for our savior and our king. So the question is, do you love Jesus that much? Do you love him enough that you'll obey him even if you don't understand? If you can't say yes, or if you're at a point in life where you can't say yes, because we all go there where we're just not feeling it, the solution is to look more deeply at the gospel. We've talked about how Jesus is our king. He has absolute authority over us, to rule over us. But more than that, he is a king who humbled himself to the point of suffering and death He's a king who loved us that much that he would take on all of our sin, take on all of the the penalty that we deserved so that we could live. He's not a king that's aloof and he's off in his castle doing his own thing, doesn't care about us. He's a king that loves us deeply and cares for us deeply. We quote Romans 5 a lot as our assurance of pardon, which says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's our king, but he's our king that loves us. The disciples knew Jesus to a certain point, and they obeyed him. They had limited information. Remember, they hadn't seen Jesus go to the cross for them yet. They hadn't seen the resurrection, but they still obeyed him. We know the rest of the story. We know what he's done. How much more readily should we obey him even than the disciples did? Knowing that Jesus is king should lead us to obedience, but knowing that Jesus is a king who loves us should lead us to heartfelt and grateful obedience. So Jesus commanded because he knew who he was. The disciples obeyed because they were committed to Jesus. And the third action is that of the crowds. Let's look at verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it and many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields and those who went before and those who followed were shouting hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord blessed is the coming kingdom of our father david hosanna in the highest the crowds praise jesus as he walks in Now, we need a context of when this is happening. Jesus is entering Jerusalem during the Passover celebration. It's a feast. So it's a big deal. People have come from all around to come to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. Think Mardi Gras without all the gross stuff. Okay? It is, it's a great, it's a big deal. They're focused on these messianic themes, thinking of what God has promised that he would do for his people. And I also want you to remember Israel's history. They've been through all these ups and downs. So they hit a high point with King David and King Solomon where they were a great nation. And then things started to deteriorate as they disobeyed God. It got to the point where the kingdom was split into two. Then it got into the point where they were all taken off into exile. It got to the point where there's always another nation that is over Israel, whether it's Assyria or Babylon or Persia or finally now in Jesus' time it's Rome. It's Rome. They're always under somebody else. They miss that kingdom that they had. That they were promised. So they're still waiting for their Messiah to come and set things right for them. So as Jesus comes in and they're shouting Hosanna, they're actually quoting uh, and singing uh, a quote from Psalm 118. It's a psalm that they would have been very familiar with at this time. Uh, and it's, it says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna is a word that simply means save us, or save us now. They're yelling out for God or for Jesus to save them. But then they add their own part of it. So where it says, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, that's not in Psalm 118. They added that part. And I think that betrays what they're really looking for. They want the heyday of when David was king, when things were good, when they weren't under Rome. They're still looking for that Messiah to come in and politically set things the way that they thought that they should be. Now, they do get it right that Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with David. He is the Davidic king. He is fulfilling that promise that God made to David all those years ago, but not necessarily in the way that they wanted it to be, that they thought it should be. See, they're praising God. They're praising Jesus in this moment because they're looking at him and expecting him to do something that they wanted him to do. They're looking at Jesus as this means to an end for them. But to that point, they praise him passionately because they think we're finally going to get what we've waited for for so long. But by the time we get to verse 11, it looks like the crowds have already dispersed. It's a short-lived Kind of thing, And then we, we know that just a few days later, the crowds are going to be shouting for the crucifixion of Jesus, not praising him anymore. He didn't do what we wanted him to do, so we're done with him. So those crowds, when Jesus came in on Palm Sunday, they praised him, but they praised him for their own means. They praised him selfishly. And church, we do that. When we use Jesus, only when he benefits us. When something that Jesus says lines up with where we fit politically, man, we are all on Facebook and posting those quotes, and we're all about it. But when something that Jesus says in his word goes against what we believe, or when it means that we have to change our view on something, we're a lot quieter about that. Probably not posting it on Facebook. The Jews missed their big problem, which was sin. That's all of our big problem, is the fact that because of our sin, we are separated from God. They missed their big problem for the sake of their immediate problem, which was politics. We can do that same thing. We can look at all the things around us and focus on those instead of looking at the real problem, which is sin. Jesus is not a tool for us to prove our point. Jesus is your king. He is our savior, he is our God, and he is worthy to be praised no matter how you feel. Whether you disagree, whether you're feeling in love with him, whether you are in that moment, at that time, feeling something, Jesus' worth and worthiness to be praised does not change. We've got to get our eyes off of the immediate problems that we think are so pressing and look at the one that's deeper. The problem, the main problem is not out there. The main problem is in here. It's our dark hearts that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, hate God. That's the problem in each and every person who has ever lived. But when we recognize that that's what Jesus came to do, that he came to fix that problem, he came to fix our main problem, that's the gospel. And we know that, and we need to keep looking at that. And when we see that, we should praise him so much more passionately than those crowds did. They walked away after. We should keep praising him long after. And if we don't, keep going back to the gospel. Keep reminding yourself of what he came to do. Stop getting sidetracked by all of these other things. Look at what Jesus actually came to do. He's our king. He's our king who loved us and came to save us, and that should drive our response. There's one more verse here. Let's look at verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Psalm 118, which is the psalm that uh, that the people quoted and they sang as Jesus came in, is this. Uh, it's a it's a messianic uh, processional psalm. So the idea of the whole psalm is that this this king has conquered and has won a victory, and they're praising God for it as as this. This king and his army come back into the city and they come back into Jerusalem and they enter the gates and they go to the temple and as they get there, they're warmly received. And they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what they were quoting when Jesus came in. But when Jesus gets to the temple and he goes through the gates, he does not receive that welcome. In fact, he looks around and what he sees is very discouraging. We see that he looks around he surveys everything and he goes back to Bethany for the rest of the night. He knows that he's going to come back tomorrow. The next day is when he comes in and he turns over the tables and the temples because the people had taken the, the, the house of God and turned it into something that it was not supposed to be. But he looks at it. He's already arrived there, but he realizes that it's not yet time for the judgment. It's coming, but it's not quite that time. That's a lot like where we are today. We have the scriptures. We understand more of who Jesus is than the disciples did. We are blessed to live in the time that we do. Not only because we're on this end of history, but we're in a time where the scriptures are so readily available to us. We have no excuse not to know Jesus, not to know who he is, not to know what he came to do. But even that being said, there's more that we'll learn of him. When he comes back, when he sets things right, because the reality is right now we're in this in-between time where Jesus has ascended. He's ruling and reigning, but we look around and we see sin, we see death, we see suffering. How many shootings did we hear about in the last week? How many people have we known who have suffered from COVID? Those things are discouraging and they cause us to look around and think, if Jesus is reigning... Why is all of this happening? 1 Corinthians tells us that now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, but then we'll know fully, even as we've been fully known. We've got more of the story than the disciples did, but we're still waiting to see exactly how Jesus works it all out. We're still waiting to see the fullness of his kingdom. No, church, Jesus is reigning. He's ruling over us. He's ruling over the world. But as we look around, as we get frustrated with the sin and the struggle, know that scripture talks even to that. In Hebrews 2, it says that in putting everything in subjection to him, him is Jesus, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We know that Jesus came. We know that he died. We know that he rose again. We know that he is at the right hand of the Father where he is ruling and reigning as our king. But we know that one day we will see everything in subjection to him. And that should give us hope while we're in the time we're in now. Jesus is our king. And because he's reigning now, because we know that we'll see the completion and the fullness of that reign in the future, then we should shout with those crowds and louder than those crowds, Hosanna, God save us because we know it's not just a political salvation we're looking for. We know that it's salvation from our sins. We know that it's salvation from the real problem and we know that he is faithful to do that. Church Jesus is our king and our actions need to be in response to that truth. We should obey him more readily than the disciples did. We should praise him more passionately than the crowds did. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we live in this time where we can see how much you love us. We see so much of the story of redemption that you've worked out for your glory and for our good. We see that though we are so undeserving, you loved us and you save us. You invite us into your kingdom. God, we look forward to the time when we're free of sin and death and pain, but in the meantime, we continue to trust you as king. We don't understand all of everything that's happening around us in the world, but we don't have to because you do. So, Lord, help us to obey. Help us to trust you more fully. Help us to praise you with all of our hearts. Lord, give us hearts that are in love with you because we see just how much you've done for us. Lord, there's not a response that we can give apart from you, so help us. Help us to respond well. Lord, we ask these things knowing that you're faithful to fulfill your word. We trust you, we thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.
0: This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.